Welcome to the Which Way Do You Eat Your Banana series of personal and management development audio guides. To subscribe or download episodes, visit www.think.gb.com. Hello, it's Gavin from Think Training. Today's podcast is entitled Four Simple Steps to Dramatically Improve Your Sales Performance. Now, this is aimed at people who run sales teams. So you're a sales manager, sales director, you could even be the big cheese, the CEO, where you have a sales operation and you want to get a better performance. Now, if you're not one of these people, if you're just a salesperson, which is a good thing, I've been one of those for many years, um, you still might find the podcast useful for two reasons. One, you might get promoted, so you could take some of this stuff with you. And two, you might suggest to your boss that they might have a listen to the podcast to help out the whole sales operation. Anyway, it's all based on experience and reality. Everything I talk about here, I've used and it works. And also my business partner, Wendy, does the same thing and it works incredibly well for her as well. So when I say it works, let me give you a little bit of context, um, not to show off, just to um, give you some demonstration. I guess I could be lying or blagging, but um, um, I'm not. Um, I first used this um, a few years back with a company um, I was national sales manager with and this company had been spending about 17 years um, making very little money, about 50,000 profit, and was never realizing its potential. And then I had it for a year, and it went from 50,000 um, profit to a 2 million profit, which ain't bad. So I thought, oh, this is interesting. So I went to another company, did the same thing, 88% growth in a year. Um, now, you know, there are other things I do apart from these four simple steps, but these are I guess the, um, the foundations of everything I use, and if you listen to all the other podcasts, you'll probably notice that aspects of those podcasts fit into these four simple steps. Now, you're probably thinking, ooh, look at you. But um, <laughs> uh, it's not just me who does this. Wendy, my fabulous business partner, um, you kind of just hear me because I do the podcast. But um, if you want to... Uh, um, um, get an insight into Wendy's brain, um, go onto the website www.thinktd.co.uk um, and you can see her weekly diary and she'll give you some weekly insights into the, um, her interesting world, I suppose. Um, when we train together, people say, uh, we can't tell you apart except for one of you's got a beard and the other one's got boobs. Um, she's clearly better looking than me as well. Um, so it's not just me doing it that works. Um, when other people do it, it works as well. I coach lots of people and I give them these simple steps and hey presto, you get the kind of results you're looking for. So let's uh, jump into the steps. Now step one is be very clear and know where you are going. Let your team know how you're going to get there and make them feel like they want to be part of it. Most companies uh, have a vision which they um, communicate to the company which will usually be reasonably sterile. Uh, we will be the number one provider of widgets to these kind of people, da 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 da, etc. etc. And if I'm working with, say, a sales manager or sales director, I'll go, So, what's your vision then for your particular team? And quite often they'll go, uh, What do you mean? Well, you know, what's your vision? And they'll go, well, oh, it's the, you know, this the, to provide the number one widgets to, uh, or I can't quite remember what the company vision is, but to do that. Or they might come up with something like, well, my vision is to hit my target. 
And if I'm lucky, when I go, oh, okay, so what's your target? They'll go, oh, it's X billion pounds or X million pounds. Um, I'm actually quite, um, <laughs> I don't know why I'm still surprised these days, but I'm, I'm always quite surprised when they don't know what their target is. Or if they do know, I tend to follow up with another question, which is, so how are you doing against your target? <laughs> At least 50% of the time, they're going to go, I don't know. <laughs> Also, quite often, I'll be working in a company where they don't really have a vision of what they're trying to do. So when you ask questions like, well, you know, kind of, what are you trying to achieve here? What's your vision? Uh, where are you going? Um, the sales manager or director will go, well, we don't know. The company hasn't told us what it is. So, you know, we're just working in limbo here. So if none of these scenarios fit you, then you're probably doing okay with this know where you're going thing. If any of these scenarios fit you, then can I suggest the following advice? If you can't explain to people where you're going and what it looks like, what it feels like, why would they follow you? If the company doesn't have a clear vision on where it's going, or their vision is pretty sterile and it wouldn't jizz you up, then there's no reason why you can't still have one or create a different one to the company vision. So all you need to do, and you probably best to do this on your own first of all, to get your own thinking going, and then perhaps you want to involve your team in this as well, is you just need to think about the future and think about, well, what will my legacy be when I'm no longer here? So if you can, try and picture yourself in two years' time. You're at your retirement due, and you've got speeches from different parts of the company, from staff who work for you, um, from clients, and they're giving some feedback on your contribution to the business, I guess. So what's your legacy? That gets you thinking about the future and what you want to achieve. So I was doing this with a team um, recently who had been in a bit of conflict, um, lots of different personalities in there. So we did things like Myers-Briggs and a few other things on team dynamics. Um, but one of the key things for me was, well, what's your common purpose together? So we talked about this legacy thing. Um, you know, what do they want people to say about this team in the future? And basically, uh, their summary was, well, we want people to come and see how we actually did it because it was so phenomenal. It was like a center of excellence. And this was um, very powerful for them, and it kind of created a common bond, and it created the future for them. Obviously, the next step for them was, well, okay, that's what we want. What do we need to do in order to achieve it? But it's the first starting point to be very clear on what you're trying to do. Now, another example of this is not for me. It's from Wendy. Um, I never saw it firsthand. I just heard about it, and I saw the results that happened after it. She had a team um, in Dartford. If, Dartford, if you're listening, um, hello. And they spent a bit of time on what they were trying to do and what they were trying to achieve. And they just found a way of summarizing um, that. I believe they were all Liverpool football fans. If you're not from the UK, it's a big football team um, in England. And uh, basically, when they walked into their Dartford branch, they had um, a big plaque um, on the ceiling, I think, or the wall, which said, this is Dartford. And they all touched that plaque as they walked into the building, which was just a summary of everything they'd talked about before about their legacy. Now, if you know about football, and this is what people do at Liverpool, when the football players walk out of the pitch, they touch, this is Anfield, the sign, which is where Liverpool play. Anyway, 
enough about football. The results were, um, I knew this because I was in charge of the whole operation, that Dartford went from a pretty low-performing branch to the top-performing branch um, in sales within a year, based on being very clear on what they were trying to do. Now, the reason why I suggest that you um, have a think about this yourself before you meet with your team about this is that people expect their leader to have some idea of what they're trying to do or where they're trying to go. Um, once you've done it yourself, I would do this with your team because this then gets the engagement from the team on the future. You just need to sit them down and ask them the questions. You know, a couple of years' time, we're going to retire. What do you want people to say about us? What are we trying to do here? What's our common purpose? Once it's all agreed, you just need to keep reminding the team about what your common purpose is and where you're going. And you need to be 100%, million percent passionate about this. Because if you're not passionate about where you're going, why should anybody else care? Uh, now, you have my permission uh, to have a vision which is different to the corporate vision. Um, I'm sure your CEO boss uh, won't drop me a line and complain if you've just increased your business by 100%. And in fact, I would encourage you to have a different vision, only because corporate visions tend to be a bit high level and most people go, well, most people can't even remember what it is um, because it doesn't really involve them. The only rule you need to apply is um, to check, does what we're trying to do here offend or is it different in any way to what the company's trying to do. So if the company's vision is to build widgets um, to a, a class A standard and yours is to produce bananas, then you're clearly drunk and mad and your CEO will be extremely annoyed with you. But what you find is that when you talk about, well, what's our legacy? There's no way on earth it's going to be a negative thing and there's no way on earth it's going to offend anything the company is trying to do. But just give it one quick sense check. Double check that what you're trying to do is in line with what the company's trying to do and you'll be okay. So that's um, step one. Be crystal clear on where you're going. Uh, let them know how you're going to get there and make them feel like they want to be part of it. Okay, so let's move on to step two. And step two is understand what are the key attributes that make a successful salesperson or a sales manager. So if you've listened to uh, the Motivation podcast or the River of Pooh podcast, I would have touched on this quite briefly. Um, if you've got a chance now, grab a piece of paper and a pen and just write down the key attributes you think that make a successful salesperson or sales manager. Because this is audio, you've got time to pause the podcast and then come back to it. Now, if you've done this, I can pretty much guarantee that your list will be at least 80% full of attributes which are related to attitude, such as enthusiasm, drive, commitment, etc., etc. And about 20% of your list will be related to knowledge and skills, such as technical competence, compliance, uh, questioning technique, whatever. Now, there's two key points that come out from this exercise, and I've done it with um, lots, of, lots of different teams, and it always comes out that most people will say, in fact, not most people, everyone will say, about 80% of that list will be um, attitudinal and 20% will be knowledge and skills. Now, the two key points are, is that number one, most companies, in my experience, spend their, well, 90% plus of their budget training on knowledge and skills. 
and very little of anything on the attitude side. And two, when people recruit salespeople or sales managers, 90% of their recruitment process is around knowledge and skills, and 20% or nothing is around attitude. So when I used to um, work as in a proper job, when I used to have um, sales teams uh, working for me, I used to always um, start my career with them uh, with a flip chart and asking the question, just shout out to me the key attributes of a successful salesperson, and they'd shout out and I would put um, uh, um, the list up and then would analyze it and would prove that 80% was attitude and 20% was knowledge and skills. I then always ask them a question, which is, if you were me, where would you spend your time? And they'd go, ooh, on, with, on the attitude. And I'd go, spot on, that's what we're gonna do. And I'd train them on attitude. And they're happy with this because they told me that's what I should do. Kind of quite neat, really, isn't it? Now, if you're thinking, hang on a minute, um, you can't train attitude, uh, then just go to iTunes, uh, type in on the search thing, the river of poo, and you'll find um, my um, iTunes kind of song thing. I'm not singing, I'm just talking. It's a 28 minute long audio on um, how to train on attitude cost you about four quid, which ain't bad if you're gonna double your sales. <laughs> now, I feel the need to put a legal caveat here. Um, I'm not sure whether you'll double your sales. You could quadruple them. You could increase by 10%. Who knows? But I'm pretty confident you're not gonna do anything which is bad. It's only gonna improve your situation. So the River of Poo on iTunes, my little audio on how to train on attitude. Now, it's a lot easier, actually, if you just recruit people um, who have the right attitude. Um, so if I were you, I'd examine your recruitment process, have a good look at it, and ask yourself, what part of this recruitment process is measuring attitude? Because from my experience, about 80 to 90% of recruitment processes measure knowledge and skills. So we get people to do role plays, we get them to do product testing, etc., etc., and then we think, great, they're the perfect person for this job because they know their stuff and they can demonstrate good questioning, listening, all that kind of stuff, and six months later, Oh crap, they haven't sold anything because they didn't get out of bed. So a real life story here, um, I worked for a company and their recruitment process was about two days long. And it was very rigorous and very professional. And I watched this process a few times and I thought, good God, I wouldn't get a job here. They are, they are looking for the ideal candidate in terms of knowledge and skills. And then the results were that the people who actually got through the process it was quite hit and miss on whether there'd be any good or not based on no one had checked their attitude. So if you have this kind of scenario yourself, all you need to do is slip in a few attitudinal sections to your recruitment process. Um, if I were you, I'd probably decide on well, what, what um, key attributes on the attitude side am I particularly looking for. For me, my personal favorite um, for salespeople is can they demonstrate drive? If they can demonstrate that, I can probably train them on the knowledge and skills, but to, to train people on drive is very difficult because you've got to look at the heart of their behavior. Now drive's my particular favorite, depending on what kind of industry I'm working in. If, you, if you're looking for people who are brilliant with customers and really, really friendly and all that kind of stuff, maybe it's empathy, I don't know, whatever works for you, um, decide what it is and then test it. And to test it, you just ask questions around it and get them to prove 
that in the past they've demonstrated this particular attitude. So just to summarize, if you understand that success is down to attitude, then make sure that's where you spend your time um, with your people and on recruitment. Now, knowledge and skills um, are still incredibly important. They're kind of your entry to the game. You need knowledge and skills to be able to play the game. It's the attitude which makes you win the game. And to give you kind of an example outside sales, I was working in a nuclear power station and I was doing this exercise with the delegates talking about success, what makes someone successful within um, this nuclear power station. And we did the old attitude, knowledge and skill thing. And the same thing came back, um, surprisingly. Uh, they came back with actually a successful person here is somebody who demonstrates really good attitude. And then a couple of people went, oh, hang on a minute. No, sorry, th this is not right. Um, it's wrong um, because we work in a nuclear power station. We need people with exceptional knowledge and skills. And as I live quite close to this nuclear power station, I'd be really happy that they had good knowledge and skills. But I did point out to them, I said, well, okay, if you had two people here with equal knowledge and skills, but one of them had phenomenal attitude, who would you rather work with? Who's going to have a better career here? And they went, good point. So um, step two, it's all about attitude. So step three is use simple key drivers or measurements to drive your business forward. Now, um, companies use a range of management information um, on their sales functions, uh, ranging from nothing um, to war and peace. Now, if you are in one of those camps where you um, use nothing, uh, you don't know what you don't know. If you're in one of those companies where you use a huge amount of management information, uh, you'll probably find that most of your time is taken up um, either trying to collate that information or to try and understand it. And actually, in my experience, most people don't try and understand it. They're just collating it and wondering what the hell it's for. Now, when I run sales businesses, um, I tend to use four key measurements to understand and drive that business. That keeps it very simple for me, and it means I can see the business from a high-level point of view and work out what's going on and predict what's going to go on in the future. I also make sure that if I want to dive deeper than those four key measurements, the system will allow me to do so. But I usually spend my time just looking at these four key measurements. And they are, uh, number one, the number of sales people I have. Sounds simple. Uh, number two, the number of appointments carried out by those sales people. Whether it's the first call, second call, third, fourth, it doesn't matter. Just the total number of appointments. If they're telephone salespeople, and the number of telephone calls they make. Uh, number three is their conversion rate to all appointments. So it doesn't matter whether it's a first appointment, second, third, fourth, it's just their conversion rate to all appointments. So for example, if a salesperson um, did 10 appointments and sold five contracts, regardless of whether they were first, second, or third appointments, uh, their conversion rate would be 50%. If they carried out 100 appointments and sold one contract, then their conversion rate is 1%. Now, um, generally speaking, if you look at a sales business, you'd expect your really good salespeople to have a higher conversion percentage than your lower performing salespeople because they're just better at what they do. You also find that new people tend to start with a low conversion ratio as they get used to the job and then it increases 
as they have more experience within the job. And the last measure is the average order size. So once you know these four things, you can really measure and understand and decide what to focus on. So to give you an example of a company, let's say we had a company which had 10 advisors and the average appointment rate was five appointments per week, the conversion ratio was 50% and the average order size was 1,000 pounds. Now for the um, mathematicians amongst you, you can work out their annual productivity, which will be the number of advisors 10 times the number of appointments they do, which is five, times their conversion ratio, which is 50%, uh, times it by the average order size, which is 1,000, and then times that by 52, i.e. for the weeks in the year, and you get an annual productivity of 1.3 million pounds. Now, interestingly, if you focus on the conversion rate, which will be uh, skills and attitude, and increase that on average to 60%, then your figures change quite dramatically. You go from a production of 1.3 million to a production of 1.56 million, an increase of 260,000 pounds or 20%. Now that's not bad um, for just focusing on one thing. And the really neat thing here as well is you're not asking your salespeople to actually work any harder. You're just showing them how to work a bit smarter. So that's just focusing on one thing. What happens if you focus on two things? So let's say we uh, focused on the conversion ratio and got that to 60%, but also we decided to drive the sales force a bit harder and ask them, instead of doing five appointments a week, to do six, so one more per week. Well, basically the sales increase by 44%, up to 1.872 million pounds, and an increase of 572,000 pounds. That's not bad, you can kind of see now how you can look at doubling sales business by just focusing on the proper measurements and the proper key drivers. You know, if you add in more salespeople, then you can work out the maths and then you start going bananas. In addition, what I always do is I always publish these figures back to the salespeople so they can work out themselves. Well, if I want to get a pay increase of 44% or 100%, what do I need to work on? Is it my activity? Is it my conversion ratio? Is it both? Is it this? It just gives them a focus as well. So just to summarize on step three, be crystal clear on the key drivers you're using to measure and understand your business. I just use four and I work in different types of industries from construction, financial services, media, and I find these four key drivers fit into any type of business I've worked in so far. You might find you need to alter them slightly for your particular type of business, but I would actually be very surprised if you couldn't get away with those four key drivers. Okay, so final step is understanding the energy in your sales business. Now there is a dynamic that goes on with a bunch of people and I like to um, phrase it or coin it in the following way, um, that there's a dynamic between the inspired people, the critical mass and the dark side. Now just to explain what those particular camps are, the inspired people are those people in your sales business who perform all the time. They are self-driven. They are the, the Luke Skywalkers, the uh, Princess Leas of your sales force. Um, everything is good. They can always make it happen. They have a can-do attitude. And if you analyze your sales results, what you'll find is, is a very high proportion of the overall business 
will come from a small group of people. A bit like Pareto's law. Um, 80% of your results are coming from 20% of um, your people. Now, it depends on your business. Um, more often than not, I probably find it slightly lower. Maybe 60% um, 60, 60 of the results come from maybe 30% of the people. Now, beneath the, the inspired, you have um, the critical mass. Now, this is the the core of your business, and this is, what, this is where you'll probably have the larger number of people. Um, now, these people can be moved in a positive or a negative direction based on a world around them. Um, the quality of their day is determined by external factors rather than themselves. Whereas you find with inspired people, the quality of their day is already predetermined when they start their day. Now, here, I think, lies the key to true and dramatic sales improvement within the critical mass. The reason being is because you usually have more people um, in this sector. If you go back to your four key drivers, if you improve the average a tiny amount, a small difference on the average conversion ratio of all these people, or the average appointment levels of all these people, makes a phenomenal impact on the overall result. However, you have to bear in mind, this is the key factor, that their day is not determined by themselves, it's determined by things that happen around them so they can be easily influenced up or down. Now beneath the critical mass, you have the final layer, which is the dark side, the Darth Vader's of this world. These people are like black holes, they suck the energy and life out of everyone around them. They're always telling you what's wrong, why things don't work, you fix things and they're still not happy. Now actually, these people do give you some good insights into what's wrong, things that you could fix. However, because their noise is so much rubbish all the time, you tend to miss the key points that come through. So that's the, um, the dynamic of a group of people you'll have in your sales um, function. And that dynamic will produce an energy. If you have lots of inspired people, your energy will probably be higher. If you have lots of dark side people, your energy will be lower and your team will tick to a certain beat, which is where I need to bring in um, uh, something called entrainment. And the theory of entrainment to me is unbelievably fascinating. And it's a real word. It's not uh, the word entrapment, which is a different thing. This is entrainment. And I believe it was first um, discovered or coined back in the 1920s by uh, a weird scientist who was doing some work with clocks, uh, clocks with pendulums, and he had lots of clocks in a room, and he set the pendulums off at different rates of, I guess, oscillation. And after a period of time, I think quite a long period of time, guess what happened? The pendulums of the clocks swung to the same rhythm in time. That's weird. If you want other examples of this, if you think about fish in the sea, if you think about a shoal of mackerel, they swim very tightly together in like a flow formation. Uh, they turn in beautiful synchronicity. Uh, how do they do that? If you look at starlings in the sky, um, they just they change direction and they all go the same way. There's not the guy at the front going, okay guys, we're gonna go left in a couple of minutes and they all kind of shunt into each other. It doesn't happen that way. They just seem to be completely synchronized. If you look at women who live in a house together, after a period of time, their menstrual cycles entrain. If you look at a mother and a baby, they have different heart um, speed, heart rates, 
baby's heart rates are a lot quicker. But if you bring the baby close to the mother, the rhythm of the heart rates entrain together. Same thing happens with a bunch of salespeople. They entrain at a certain beat. And if you change the dynamic of the inspired, the critical mass of the dark side, you change that beat. Now, if you go back to these steps we've looked at already, step one, um, be very clear on where you're going and how you're going to get there. Uh, this has a massive impact on the critical mass because those are the people who tend to be affected by the world around them. If you tell them what the world around them is going to be, it makes them feel better. If they feel better, they'll perform better. If you look at step two, uh, which is um, success is about attitude, if you recruit people with the right attitude, you're increasing the number of inspired people in your camp, which automatically drags the energy upwards. Again, if you train people on attitude, you increase the number of people who can control the environment, so become inspired, and therefore, again, you pull the energy upwards. And interestingly, I've done this quite a few times, and the impact is quite powerful, is that if you do train your people on attitude, what you will find is some people in the dark side don't actually mean to be there, and once you train them on attitude, they very quickly jump to the inspired. And if they're in the inspired, the people in the critical mass go, well, if they can do it, I can do it. And then it just goes nuts. Step three is just a measurement of this dynamic. Um, if you're getting an increase in conversion ratio, it means your attitude's getting better. You're getting more inspired people and the skill level's getting better. If you get an increase in appointment rates, again, you've got the same thing going on. So it just tells you how that dynamic is working. So some key points to remember with regards to this dynamic. Number one is people can move from the dark side to the inspired. Number two, your managers must be in the inspired. Or if you're a manager, you have to be in the inspired. You can't expect your team below you to be inspired when you're not. So you need to develop your managers to make sure they're inspired. If they refuse to come become inspired, I would suggest that you just get rid of them. That seems a bit harsh, but their managers, their leaders, they need to be inspired. Number three, the critical mass governs your averages. A minor change in the critical mass is a major change on a national scale. Number four, the last one, the key to all of these changes relate to attitude. So make sure you focus your time on attitude and if you want training on attitude go to iTunes and search the river of poo so there we are uh, four simple steps to dramatically improve your sales performance this is not based on theory this is based on practical reality stuff that Wend and I and other people have done and it works trust me so a couple of things you might like to do now uh, one is apply the stuff I've just been talking about uh, two, um, invite us in to do some training with you and your team. Uh, we'd be delighted to hear from you. Or three, if you feel you need a bit more hands-on involvement, uh, we do get involved in interim contracts where we work within the company for a period of time until we've turned it around. Um, if you'd like to find out information on this, just uh, contact us uh, through our email address, which is info at thinktd.com. .co.uk or visit the website www.thinktd.co.uk. Now, I used to just have one guru uh, who was Yoda, or who is Yoda? Does he still exist? Uh, with the phenomenal phrase, there is no try, just do. 
Um, I was watching telly last night and I was watching a chap called Eddie Izzard. And if you don't know who he is, he's a very famous comedian in England, very, very funny guy. And it was about the fact that he had just completed 46 marathons in 50 days in aid of sport relief. So this is raising money for people in Africa. And if you've ever seen Eddie Izzard, he's, he's quite a, a um, reasonably biggish chap. He doesn't look like a runner. And watching the program, he had done five weeks training before he started this campaign. And I've only watched the first part. I know he's completed it because he did it a while back. But he completes 46 marathons in 50 days, which is just, I am in total awe of the man. Eddie, you're the man. But what it goes to show for me is that this guy is not a natural runner. He hasn't got natural knowledge and skills on running, but what he has in abundance is attitude. And hats off to you, um, Ed. You're the man. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. If you ever get a chance, just find it on Google or something and watch Eddie Izzard do his marathon man thing. He's just insane. So I now have two gurus in my life, Yoda and Eddie Izzard. So uh, until next time, take care. See ya.